Dear Father, just now as we consider um, the wilderness temptations, help us understand what was really at stake. And also please make this applicable to our life today. Amen. All right, last time I left off uh, just a couple slides. So I'll just finish uh, with Matthew maybe. We could go with Luke. Maybe sometime talk about the differences between the genealogies between Matthew and Luke. But on our point last time about our unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness through the Old Testament, uh, this list, which uh, you know maybe is not very interesting to read through, I think takes on more significance. Okay, because we read about the line of Jesus, and so now maybe we have more meaning when we come to Isaac and Jacob, and we remember the things that Jacob did, and Judah, and we remember the things that Judah did, and his brothers and Perez and Zerah and their mother was Tamar. And we remember the story of Tamar. And we just go through the list. Boaz, his mother was Rahab. Who was Rahab? What was her occupation? Uh, Obed, Jesse, King David. And again, the point is, you know, could Jesus have come like he did to Abraham, just as a human? But the fact that he really associated himself. I mean, he's the only person that could choose his family. That he associates himself with, with some of these characters is, is pretty remarkable. David, Solomon, and it's just kind of interesting, the wording here in Matthew, his mother was the woman who had been Uriah's wife. And does it just seem like the, the writer here of Matthew, uh, it's just such a horrible story that just can't almost put the, the name to the story, the woman who had been Uriah's wife. Rehoboam, who was responsible for splitting the kingdom in two. And we think about some of these bad kings. Some of them did some good things. Uh, Manasseh, who killed so many people that the streets flowed with blood. And Jesus is in that line. So again, I think it's maybe another point that can be made that would speak um, to God's faithfulness and his willingness to fully identify with us, even with all of this going on. And so last year we made a big point of this, so I'll just have one verse here, that in the context of God's reputation really being ruined in the Old Testament, we read the verse last time in Ezekiel, you've ruined my reputation, ruined my character, that Jesus comes as the revealer. In John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. Now is this primarily talking about what he looks like? Eyes, nose, mouth. What does that mean? The only Son who is the same as God and is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Did Jesus come to make us know the physical characteristics of the Father? Uh, doesn't this refer primarily in a, in a spiritual sense? No one has really seen, comprehended God's character, what God is like. And the Son, who is the same as God, He came to make Him known. Okay, so for me, if I'm making a list of you know, doctrines, um, the, the doctrine number one would be that Jesus, who is the same as God, that he is the perfect reflection of what God is like. And we get all of our theology branches out from that. Okay, and we're going to kind of go through the Gospels with that as kind of a central theme. We see Jesus doing something. That's what God does. In, or that's what God would do. That's what God did in that circumstance. God is like that. God is like that with every story. And I think that that has quite a profound effect on our own beliefs about God. Okay, but today we're going to talk about the temptations. 
And so, of course, you know, Jesus was baptized, and uh, this will become evident why we're talking about the baptism here, that you'll remember the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my own dear son, I am pleased with you. And in Mark, it's very powerful here that immediately after the baptism, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness or compelled him to go out into the wilderness. So uh, what was so important here about Jesus needing to go out into the the wilderness? Okay, so in in Luke 4, we'll primarily be using Luke. Uh, The temptations are in a little bit different order if you compare it to Matthew and Luke but we'll be using the Luke account. So Jesus returned from the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the desert where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. And all that time he ate nothing so that he was hungry when it was over. That would be kind of an understatement, wouldn't it? Okay, it's expressed a little differently in Matthew. And in Matthew, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights and afterwards he was famished and then the tempter came. Okay, so we're not going to make a big deal about when the temptations occurred during the 40 days, at the end of the 40 days. Um, but what we're trying to understand is how was this a temptation to Jesus? Okay, and, and what were the implications? Um, you know, is, is Satan uh, pretty clever to design something that would really be a temptation? Superficially, these temptations, you know, seem kind of foolish. But uh, let's let's see if we can get through this. So the first question is, was Jesus really tempted? Do you think Jesus was ever tempted? Uh, Most of you are saying yes. And I think, you know, if we look at Gethsemane, the cross, uh, we can make a case. Jesus was tempted. And so, you know, what do we do with a verse like this? God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God cannot be tempted. Was Jesus tempted? Um, does this have implications for who Jesus was? Well, I don't think so because, you know, when we think about God, we tend to think of the three omnis. Omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. Um, was Jesus omnipresent? Was he everywhere at the same time? Um, no, he wasn't. Was he uh, omniscient? Well, someone would ask him, when's the second coming? And he said, well, I don't know. Only the Father knows. Uh, was he uh, omnipotent? Even about all of his miracles, you know, what did Jesus say? Uh, I could do nothing of myself. It's through the Father in me that all of these uh, miracles occur. And so um, I think we can take the position that Jesus was fully God, God in human form. But what needed to be revealed about God was not that God is powerful. I mean, it's only been in recent history that anyone has doubted God's power. Um, What needed to be revealed was something uh, much more important than God is powerful. So I would say Jesus laid aside these uh, what are sometimes called uh, divine prerogatives. And what we see in Jesus is God's character. We see what God is like and we also see um, how we are to live. Fully dependent on the Father for everything. Um, He really came to make an example for us and came to reveal uh, God's character, not just a knowledge that God is powerful. Okay, now I think it's helpful before we think about the temptations in Matthew. It's, it's interesting. There are a lot of parallels uh, we could make with things in the Old Testament. And of course, with Eve at the tree. There were three temptations there and there were three temptations um, with Jesus. They both involve food, interestingly enough. And so let's uh, just try to consider here. Uh, I think it's helpful to see how the adversary works and we get an idea of maybe what the motive is behind it all. So the snake was the most cunning crafty, subtle, 
animal that the Lord God had made. And the snake asked the woman, did God really tell you not to eat any fruit from any tree in the garden? And um, we, we've talked about this, I know, for the second year students. We went over this story several times, probably last year. But what's, what's so bad about that? Did God really tell you not to eat fruit from any tree in the garden? How is that a temptation? What would the implication be? Of course, God said, you may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden. And the snake essentially comes along and says, hmm, uh, it's kind of funny. You can't eat any fruit in this garden. Okay, it's kind of a, a denial of, you know, God is kind of being lavish. You can eat the fruit from any tree in the garden, but don't go to that one. And he made a very severe warning. If you go to that one tree. And so the kind of the, the implication for Eve here, I think, is to get the wheels turning. You know, how come God has restricted my freedom in any sense? It was kind of a question of God putting limits on her freedom. And maybe just to begin to, to try to question God just a little bit. Okay, and she replied, I would say, kind of, um, well, I mean, if God had just told you something and then someone would contradict that, the best thing would probably just be to uh, to leave and say, well, I'm going to go talk with God about this. I'm going I'm to end this conversation right now. But instead she said, well, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. And God said, you must not eat it or even touch it, which we don't have that recorded uh, in the Bible. But if you do, you will die. And I've appreciated here the Net Bible footnotes on this, that there's a notable change between what the Lord God had said and what the woman says. God said you may freely eat. The emphasis is on the abundance, the freedom. The woman omits the emphatic infinitive, saying simply, we may eat. Her words do not reflect the sense of eating to her heart's content. So she doesn't really uh, defend God accurately. Okay? And then, of course, uh, here kind of, if we want to put this in terms of a temptation, second thing the snake replied is, that's not true. You will not die. And, I mean, how more damaging could this be? Because what is that saying? That's not true i.e., God is a liar. God has lied to you. God is not trustworthy. And God lied to you when he said that the sin, rebellion, would lead to death. I mean, this was really uh, very, uh, I would say, subtle, but designed to completely destroy her trust, her connection with God, and uh, it worked. So again, in the Net Bible footnotes, this was a blatant negation, equivalent to saying, not, you will surely die. Okay, and then finally, the, the third part of this three-pronged lie was uh, when he, the serpent went on to say, God said that because he knows that when you eat it, you will be like God and know what is good and what is bad. And again, the implication here is, you know, God has selfishly withheld something from me that would have been for my own good. Okay, what does that say about God? And God has threatened me with death for something that actually would make me more elevated. So really the, the charges, the attacks here were all to kind of uh, break down trust in God, to destroy God's reputation again. It's kind of our theme here. So Satan deceives us about God, and he's not only our accuser. Okay, We emphasize that point, but he is also God's accuser. And eating the fruit here, this was not a poisonous apple or whatever it was, the fruit, that eating the fruit was the confirmation that the lie was believed. She ate the fruit. She believed what she was told. And again, it's quite telling that God comes for a walk in the garden. 
And Adam and Eve then are hiding in the bushes. Okay, they're not afraid of the serpent. They're afraid of God. So everything was just uh, twisted at that point. And then we have titles for Satan in the rest of the Bible as the prince of this world. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it would just seem like the, the balance of uh, what happened in our planet completely changed at that moment. Okay, and just very briefly, there aren't a lot of references to Satan in the Old Testament, but another one that's interesting in this context is the story of Job. Okay, and of course you remember that this was not just a little private conversation between God and Job. It was when the day came for the heavenly beings to appear before the Lord, Satan was there among them. Okay, and remember God initiated the conversation. Have you seen my servant Job? And here's an accusation. Well, uh, would Job worship you if he got nothing out of it? Okay, because this is kind of how tyrants operate, isn't it? I mean, when you think about the worst tyrants in human history, how do they get their power? Uh, it's generally two ways. You, you pay off the people that are in your inner circle. It's really rewarding to them. Okay, and you crush your opposition. Okay, threats, you punish them. And so here in the case uh, with Job, it's, well, Job just does it for selfish reasons. He doesn't really care about you just because you bless him. You give him so much. And then the rest of the story is God allowing Satan to take it all away. And Job, um, uh, I think, really speaks well of God if you take the book as a whole. So again, Satan is the accuser. But in this case, I mean, if all of the heavenly beings are getting together, are they then disinterested to see whether what Satan said of Job was correct or whether God said of Job was correct? Don't you think they watched the story unfold? So Satan is the accuser of God, not just for us, but I think we can also say for the uh, angelic universe as well. And in the, the wilderness temptations, as soon as it was over, what happened? Angels came to help Jesus. Okay, Do you think angels were watching as a fellow former fallen angel is there tempting Jesus? They were watching that. And as soon as it was over, uh, they were there to help Jesus. I think bringing in a, a conflict that is bigger than just you know our earth and God and, and bringing in the angelic population is helpful. So Satan accuses us in front of the onlooking universe or accuses God. The other parallel uh, that most people have written about with the temptations is with Jesus and Israel. Okay, And so if we read 1 Corinthians 10, uh, talking about a baptism of Israel through the Red Sea, okay, Paul would say, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that all our ancestors who left Egypt were under the cloud. They all went through the sea. They were all united with Moses by baptism in the cloud and in the sea. All of them ate the same spiritual food. All of them drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that went with them, and that rock was Christ, or some say Christ himself. Okay. Previously, I tried to make a point that that God of the Old Testament, that we can make a case that that was none other than the Son of God. And here he is leading the people through the wilderness. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, so their dead bodies were scattered over the desert. So we have a baptism of the people in the Old Testament. Jesus was baptized. And then, of course, what happened? Baptism was followed by 40 years of temptation, we could say, in the wilderness, 40 days for Jesus. Okay, and in, in Deuteronomy 8, okay, Moses would say, remember how the Lord your God led you out on this long journey through the desert these past 40 years, sending hardships to test you. Okay, and they, couldn't we say, failed for the most part. All of the, the tests Okay, go just a little bit too long without water, and right away they're blaming God. Okay, and the third point, I think, to make a parallel between two baptisms 
two 40-year day period of times with temptation is that when Jesus defends himself against Satan, he every, all of his quotes are right in this passage between Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. So he seems to be going back to, uh, I think, undo. Okay, Israel let God down. Jesus came, uh, I think, to reveal something different. They failed God, and he proved that he wouldn't fail God. Okay, so the contrast, again, is between unfaithful Israel and faithful Christ. Okay, so what are these temptations really up to? And here I want to kind of get your feedback on this, because it's not really obvious, I think, on the surface. But the devil said to him, if you are God's son, order this stone to turn into bread. Okay, has this ever been a temptation for any of you? Okay, I've heard someone joke that uh, we can turn bread into stone, but not the other way around. Okay, but how is this a temptation for Jesus and, and why was this significant? I mean, this is the best the devil could do. Had a long time to think about this and, well, I'll ask him if he can turn a stone into bread. So uh, what do you think? Anyone have any thoughts? Why was this something that would in any way tempt Jesus as it wouldn't tempt most of us? Yeah, okay, it would remove him. I think that's a good point. It would remove him as an example for us because when we're hungry, we can't just zap things into food, right? So Jesus, we just said, he came to reveal that we can live that way as well. I think that's a very good point. Um, any other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. I hope all of you could hear that. But isn't this similar to Job? The accusation against Job was, well, he only does, uh, he only follows you because you bless him. And here, if Jesus had all of this power, uh, wouldn't that just say, well, look, I mean, God has blessed him, but uh, it's certainly, it's an unfair advantage. So it would kind of feed into that. So I think those are some, some good points. Um, so turning stone into bread. The other thing is, uh, do you notice just the first word? If you are God's son. And if you just go back a few verses, Jesus is baptized and we have the father saying, you are my own dear son. Okay, shouldn't the first word out of his mouth been a big red flag? Well, I shouldn't say that because I don't know Greek, but uh, however this came out, that um, this was kind of a denial or at least to put in question the claim that you are my own dear son. And if Jesus had really done it, would it have suggested that, well, maybe he doubted a little bit and so he did it to prove that the devil was wrong? So again, I think just like uh, with what happened at the tree, uh, there is uh, perhaps something that was created to just create a little doubt. Huh, was it really true? The words. And of course, Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy, the scripture says human beings cannot live on bread alone. And I like how Jesus is so concise in here. I mean, he doesn't you know, go on and on like uh, it seemed Eve did at the tree, adding little, little things like, well, we can't even touch it. He just quotes a verse and that's the end. Okay, I think there's a lot behind this first temptation. So I said it was designed to create doubt in his father. And I think, as was said, that it was designed to lead Jesus to perform miracles for selfish reasons. And we see again and again the choice here, save self or save others. And I, I can't think of a single miracle that Jesus did that was for himself. Okay, every single miracle, every miraculous thing, when you go through the life of Jesus, it was only for others. And I think this was just a small step in the direction of doing miracles, doing things, using power for self. 
rather than for others. I mean, what if Jesus had said, uh, boy, you know, it's hot out here. Why just stop with a loaf of bread? Uh, let's build a huge banquet hall and have a huge spread. And, uh, you know, what am I wearing these rags for? I'm, these aren't fit for a king. And snap, and he's got some incredible outfit. And uh, by the way, Satan, you're dead. I mean, what if he had just gone through and used his power like that? Okay, I think that's where this would lead, though. Okay, it just would have been a step in using power for the wrong reasons, for self. And uh, as I'll try to make a case for, I think this temptation uh, was really designed to strike at the very root of God's kingdom. And let me give us some examples. Again and again and again in the Gospels, you have something like this. So the Jewish authorities came back to him with a question. What miracle can you perform to show us that you have the right to do this? So he was always tempted. Do a miracle. Prove yourself. Okay, He never did it under that uh, circumstance. And you remember that when he was brought to Herod, Herod was pleased when he saw Jesus because he'd heard about him, had been wanting to see him for a long time. He was hoping to see Jesus perform a miracle. Okay, remember Jesus didn't say anything. Okay, so the temptation again and again was, I mean, just imagine having the power. Wouldn't that be a temptation if you actually had the power under a circumstance like that to really prove yourself? Wouldn't you begin to think, well, you know what, if I just did a little bit, then maybe he'd listen to me. Uh, Wouldn't you want to use your power? I think that was a temptation. And on the cross, the same theme comes back. So the people passing by shook their heads, hurled insults at Jesus. You are going to tear down the temple and build it back up in three days. Again, save yourself. Save self if you are God's son. Isn't that pretty similar? Save yourself if you are God's son. Come on down from the cross. In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders made fun of him, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Isn't he the king of Israel? If he will come down off the cross now, we will believe him. Was that a temptation? He trusts in God and claims to be God's son. Well, then let us see if God wants to save him now. Okay, so a similar kind of thing. And it just take a little bit, you know, one guard to be tossed up in the air or, or something like that. I mean, wouldn't it have taken a lot? I think this was a temptation. And so I said, this struck at the root of God's kingdom. And uh, this is a quote that uh, over the years has become more and more meaningful to me. It's from a book uh, called Education. And just see if you agree with this. Unselfishness. Now, maybe selfishness isn't a real inward. now. Could we say um, other-centered love, perhaps? Loving others more than self. But here, unselfishness. And notice, the principle of God's kingdom is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence, he denies. I mean, is that a fair thing? Is the principle of God's kingdom? From the beginning of the great controversy, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish. And he deals in the same way with all who serve God. To disprove Satan's claim as the work of Christ and all who bear his name. That's part of our responsibility too. It was to give in his own life an illustration of unselfishness that Jesus came in the form of humanity. Have you ever heard the life of Jesus boiled down to that? It was to give in his own life an illustration of unselfishness that he came in the form of humanity. And all who accept this principle are to be workers together with him in demonstrating it in practical life. So again, this would, if God's kingdom is really about other-centered love, that's what it's all about, um, then just doing this little act that would seem pretty harmless, it's just diverting away from that. So we can give lots of verses here, but Jesus' own words, talking about himself, like the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to 
serve and to give his life to redeem many people. Okay, he came to serve. He came to lay down his life. He came to reveal that God's kingdom is based on living that way. Okay, and I like the message uh, here, paraphrase of Romans 14 and into verse chapter 15, that our task is to single-mindedly serve Christ. Strength is for service, not status. Each one of us needs to look after the good of the people around us, asking ourselves, how can I help? And that's exactly what Jesus did. So it would be quite a different story if God came in human form and just told us, hey, I want you guys to serve. But he didn't actually do it himself. Okay, I think it makes it very powerful when God comes and he serves and he suffers and he lays down his life. And that, I think, stimulates us to, to want to live that way as well. Okay, so just when we uh, consider here that uh, the, the significance of this, um, the other is that um, <clears throat> I think this act of doing miracles for self um, was also perhaps to de- uh, designed to lead Jesus to use coerce, coercive power. And I would say that coercive power, uh, I would like to just make the claim that this is not a part of God's kingdom. When we see force and coercion to believe, um, those are not God's methods. Okay, so just for example, let me just think of the, all the accusations against Jesus. Um, you know, the reputation was, well, what good thing comes from Nazareth? And they said he has a demon. And again and again, he said, show us a miracle if you are who you say you are. And so, you know, just imagine that uh, Jesus had done something like what Darth Vader did. Remember when someone, uh, they were questioning him and he just reached out and said, I find your lack of faith disturbing. And one of the Pharisees <laughs> began to, to choke a little bit. Now, he would immediately get a big following, right? Just to use a little coercive power. But um, the thing is, that'll bring a lot of people maybe to your side, but for the wrong reason. And I would just say God's kingdom does not coerce. And um, I think we can give some examples. Jesus so many times doing a miracle and then saying, don't tell anyone. Be quiet about it. And he would so many times tell people, well, do you believe only because of the miracle? He didn't want people to believe because of the miracle. He wanted people to believe for different reasons, not just because of might, show, and power. And again, we just imagine if Jesus and his disciples had just floated around and, and done things, they would have had a, a, a huge kingdom. Okay, But this is not the type of kingdom, that's not the, the kind of people that Jesus wanted to attract. <clears throat> we wonder sometimes why God doesn't do more to answer questions in our time. And we just imagine, uh, I mean, just imagine if God came as a huge pillar of fire to Loma Linda. Okay, undeniable, you know, every news team would be there and in a matter of uh, hours, the whole world would see this undeniable, supernatural, there's God. Okay, and atheism would be cured in a day. Okay, there wouldn't be an atheist. God has the power to do this. Okay, but it would seem pretty obvious that what God wants can't be commanded and that God doesn't want us on our knees, excuse me, groveling in fear. Okay, it doesn't work. We have to, God wants to win us in a different way than to compel and to force us. And I would say also that coercion, in fact, it never produces love. And I gave this illustration last year, but uh, the, the marriage analogy is used so many times in the Bible. It's such a dominant metaphor uh, for the marriage relationship. Okay, so you have a man who, let's say, is proposing. Okay, and... He asks this woman to marry him and she hesitates just a little bit. 
Okay, and he becomes worried. And just imagine, you know, that he would just lay a gun on the table here and just, just set it there. <clears throat> now, what happens to love when you are coerced? Okay, whenever freedom is taken away, it's, it's just a rule that loss of freedom, coercion, love actually diminishes. Okay, it has to work that way. And so, uh, again, what God wants, he wants our love freely given and that cannot be forced or, or coerced. Okay, so that's why, again, the, the use of miracles, show and power to win us to his side, we would think maybe that would be a good thing, but it actually doesn't bring people into the kingdom. Okay, now the second temptation is kind of interesting. Uh, the devil took him to Jerusalem, set him on the highest point of the temple, and said to him again, if you are God's son, okay, again, the doubt is implied, Throw yourself down from here. For the scripture says, God, now isn't this amazing? Satan can quote scripture. The scripture says, God will order his angels to take care of you. It also says, they will hold you up with their hands so that not even your feet will be hurt on the stones. I find this amazing that Satan here can quote the Bible. And Jesus again brought him back to this one little passage here in Deuteronomy. The scripture says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, what's, what's the temptation here? Well, the first was, Jesus, use your power, use miracles, do something for self. And the second temptation is, um, okay, just put your trust in God. And I'm quoting a bunch of scripture here that would say, if you really trust God, and by the way, you're not afraid, are you? Um, just throw yourself off this cliff. Okay, and so, again, I think, uh, was it a temptation? Did he want to prove himself? Uh, it's somewhat different now. He's not being asked to use his power. He's just being asked to let go, put his faith in God. Okay, and again, Jesus would have none of it. And if we just if we come back here to the passage in Deuteronomy, then again we compare what Jesus did with what Israel did. Okay, this again this passage comes from Deuteronomy six, where Moses would say, "Do not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did at Massa." And where was that? Well, that was the first story where the people came out and they complained because there was no water. They complained to Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said, why are you complaining? Why are you putting the Lord to the test? That the people were very thirsty. And that's where this came from. So again, Israel failed God. They didn't trust God. Okay, so Jesus had to go back over that same ground and uh, to, to put his faith in God. The third temptation was the devil took him up and showed him in a second all the kingdoms of the world. Remember, didn't Jesus come to win all the kingdoms of the world? And he said, I will give you all this power and all this wealth, the devil told him. It has all been handed over to me. Now remember, the devil's a liar, so you want to be careful interpreting anything that uh, he says, but it's all been handed over to me and I can give it to anyone I choose. All this will be yours then if you worship me. Okay, was it perhaps just for a fleeting moment? Jesus is looking at his life of suffering, his death, and to think I can have it all right now. And Satan will leave me alone. But again, very short reply, quoting scripture, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And um, this passage in the context, going back to Deuteronomy, is the people worshiping other gods. Okay, and the command, worship only God. Now here's what I find interesting. So the devil left Jesus, left him for a while, and then angels came and helped him. And I just find it amazing, you know, that uh, Satan here, who was 
an angel, I guess we could still call him an angel, a fallen angel, that we have loyal angels, I think, intently watching everything that happened. And as soon as they have an opportunity, they're there. So they're, they're engaged. Um, and I think, wouldn't you be amazed to see a fellow creature asking God in human form to get down on his knees and worship you? Um, the creature asking the creator uh, to worship him. It's, it's just very twisted. But I think this is very significant because we sometimes wonder, well, what does the devil want? What's he really after? And I think this is it. He wants worship, desires our worship. And I think he just couldn't help it here. I think this is kind of a foolish temptation, but it just came out. Will you worship me? That's what he really wants. And uh, just if we kind of look at this, uh, maybe prophetically, I wish we had more time to go through this uh, passage in Second Thessalonians, where Paul would say, do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the final rebellion takes place and the wicked one appears who's destined to hell He will oppose every so-called God or object of worship and will put himself above them all. He will even go in and sit down in God's temple and claim to be God. Okay, so there, I think, again, reflects the real desire is for worship. And what temple is this? Well, aren't we the temple? How many times in the New Testament? You are the temple. I mean, I think he wants to, in our minds, to reside as God. So who worships Satan? Okay, we, we tend to associate Satan with kind of ridiculous uh, caricatures, right? And associate Satan mainly with Halloween and Ouija boards and things like that. And the most rebellious, far out people on the planet. Okay, but when you actually look through the Bible, it, it really seems that Satan has his greatest interest on the church, on the people who are trying to learn about God. That's, that's where he seems to work the hardest. And I think our classic example of this um, are the Pharisees. Okay, did the Pharisees have a pretty good external list of things that they were doing? It's pretty impressive. Would they ever miss church? Hey, no way. Did they read their Bibles? Remember Jesus said, you quote, I mean, scripture, you read scripture because you think in there you have eternal life. So they read their Bibles. Did they do mission work? Remember Jesus said, you send a missionary halfway around the world and then make him twice as deserving of hell as you are. Did they pay tithe? They even tithe the seeds. They were so careful with tithing. Did they call God by the right name? Well, we are the children of Abraham. They called him Yahweh. So they called God by the right name. And uh, when we went through Ezra and Nehemiah last year, remember we talked about finally the people got their act together. And instead of intermarrying with the heathen, that was the end of it. And so they really cut off all of those um, idolatrous relationships. They didn't worship idols. Now, of course, you could make a case that there are other idols, but all of those gods of the Old Testament, they no longer worship them. Uh, They keep the Sabbath. Remember, why did they come by to break the legs of Jesus? It was Friday night, and they needed to die soon enough so they could get home and keep the Sabbath. So they kept the Sabbath. Were they eagerly awaiting the first coming? Yeah, obviously, they were eagerly waiting the coming of the Messiah. So, you know, uh, which one of these would we say is is really out of line? Okay, but yet these people who had a good list, who were they worshiping? Okay, remember Jesus said, you are of the children of your father, the devil, and you want to follow your father's desires. When he tells a lie, he's only doing what is natural to him because he is a liar. And I like translations that say, and the father of the lie, singular, which is, I guess, the best way to translate that. Okay, We can talk later. What is the lie? But the point is here, a very religious people 
Okay, who, despite keeping, I think, what we would say is a pretty good external list, Jesus would say, you are of your father the devil. And so, I hope we have some time this year, I think we will, to get through the book of Revelation. But um, I think the contrast here is pretty interesting. In Revelation 13, we have this woman standing on the sun, representing the church. She's fleeing from the dragon. Okay, so this is the church in, in a good sense. And we just read on a few chapters... And what happens? Now the woman is sitting on the beast. Okay, this is, this is referring to, this is a religious people. Okay, again, I think even, couldn't we say people that have called Jesus their savior, you know, that tortured people to death, like uh, people that would try to translate the Bible into a language people could understand. So just calling God by the right name, there's a lot more to it than that. Okay, and, and I like Dr. Tonstead's uh, emphasis on this in Revelation, that here between Revelation 13 and 16, what is the adversary up to? Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. The dragon gave the beast his own power. It opened its mouth in slander against God, misrepresenting his name. Okay, name means more than just the name of someone. It's the character. Slander, character assassination. And his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Okay, and so when, when John sees the woman here on the beast in Revelation 17, um, a good translation of this is, I was appalled. I was shocked. You see the faithful church here, and then you see what happens. Okay, so just a question here for us today that maybe wouldn't disagree uh, with, with doing some of the things on the list. Uh, what did the Pharisees need to know to recognize who Jesus was? What do we need to know to recognize Jesus? Um, again, um, it's a good list. What did they have wrong? Well, I think the case I would like to make is they didn't know what God was like. They certainly did not appreciate a God of service, a God of humility, a God who would have such an interest in the poor, a God who didn't come to lead a mighty nation to conquer the Romans. Uh, in essence, they, they didn't know what God's character was like. And so I think, again, if we're making a list of doctrines, I would just like to say that maybe we wouldn't disagree with these. Maybe these can all be helpful, and they are. But there has to be something more than that, more than a list. Okay, We need to be settled into the kind of person Jesus is or God is. And I think had the Pharisees been settled into what God is like, they would have recognized him. Okay, And everything would have been uh, entirely different. All right, so uh, next time we'll move on a little bit with the life of Jesus. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, there's much to admire in uh, what we see in the life of Jesus. Um, and perhaps we can come, as, as just as we come to see you, as we really are, that our love, our worship springs from love and, and desire for you, for your goodness, rather than uh, to feel compelled or forced. So help us to enter into that relationship with you. Amen. Thank you.